Hello everyone, welcome to Speak Out Loud. My name is Ricky Terry. I'm the president and host. I really wanna thank you for joining us today. We've assembled some of the top people in their field, the subject matter experts that are gonna help us understand how to deal with this COVID-19. Today's show is simply entitled COVID-19 and the African-American community. And where do we go from here? Guys, we've had to deal with a lot, our whole lives. We've had to deal with things no other people have had to deal with. And we've overcome some tremendous things in our lives. We've been dealing with it, I dare say, for 400 years. And if we were ever thinking about surviving, if we ever thought about reaching the next level, if we've ever thought about how important it was, this is now the time. There has been no greater challenge to us than we're facing now, especially in the African-American community. I need not tell you all of the things that are going on. What I can share with you, because it seems like the whole world is under stress, is that there is no room for anyone to stand on the sidelines. And so again, I've assembled some of the great thought leaders, scientists, doctors, teachers, psychologists, uh, uh, we got psychologists, we got uh, uh, principals, we got a host of people, uh, entrepreneurs, who are going to help us understand not only what we're dealing with, but how do we move forward? And trust me, it's important that we continue to move forward. So as we get started, I wanna give some shout outs to some very special people who has helped us put this program together, starting with my executive producer and manager, Janita Terry, with uh, JT, the super producer, uh, who is here helping me with all of the audio and visual. Thank you to both of them. I want to send a special shout out to the village. When we put a call out for experts, man, did you guys deliver. When we asked you, who of our guests would you like to hear from again? Man, did you guys deliver. And so again, I want to welcome you to Speak Out Loud. We broadcast every Thursday starting at 7 p.m. Uh, we also want to welcome those from LinkedIn, uh, Facebook. Uh, hey, Facebook, we have people monitoring. And I'm going to say, get, get ready, get ready, get ready, because it's going to be an exciting time, I promise you. Right now, I'd like to introduce to you my first guest. My first guest is no stranger to the show. He is absolutely one of the out front leaders of uh, what's going on in our community. He has been working diligently, diligently uh, to get the word out about the importance of this disease or virus pandemic and what we can do to help present ourselves. So JT, if it's not a problem with you, I'd like to bring on my first guest, Dr. Luther Virgil. Doctor, how are you? We're going we're gonna to start your video and we're going to unmute your doc if you don't mind. There we go. Hold on, guys. We're going to get through this. Dr. Virgil, open it up, Joshua, for everyone. Open everyone up. 
I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. We can hear you. Okay. How about that? Can you see me now? I can, not only can I can I hear you, I can see you, JT. Put Thank you. Gallery view, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to go up in gallery view there. Uh, Doc, you've been with us before. So would you take time? Let's give people some of your street cred because this isn't an interview. We are simply holding a conversation about this, this disease. And when you were first here, you told us one of the most important things. I I'll share that in a minute. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, uh, where you're from, uh, how you got here, and then we'll go from there. Is that okay? Okay, absolutely. Um, again, my name is Dr. Luther Virgil. I'm an internal medicine physician, also as a specialist in infectious diseases. I was trained very well at Howard University Hospital in Washington, D.C. Um, I have been a physician for about 32 years. And uh, as an infectious disease physician, uh, was there at the beginning of the HIV epidemic. I've been, been involved with uh, treatment and uh, providing information and even involved with research as it relates to HIV, as it relates to uh, other types of illnesses that we've run into in the past, including Ebola, and some of the others, and now, of course, with the coronavirus. I currently am the uh, director of operations and the medical director for RISE Multimedia LLC, which is a health and wellness uh, information uh, network, um, and it focuses a, a lot on the underserved population. Well, I want to thank you for joining. When you were last here, you said something that really got me. And one of the reasons I want to start with you, you said, and I asked you, what is one of the most important things you would want uh, us to know? And I'm going to say nothing about what you gave us that day has changed. And you said, it's important to know where you're getting your information from and understand what is uh, dis or misinformation that is being put out. Uh, right. Do you still say that's one of the most important things? Absolutely. That's not changed. If you were to ask me today in, in, in this presentation, hey, what's the, how do we address the issue of this impact or how do we uh, yeah, address the impact of what COVID-19 is doing in all populations, and especially in minority and African-American populations, the first thing I would tell you is information, information that you can trust, identification of information sources that can be trusted. That's the first thing. And I think now that you've seen what's happened just recently, that statement from me holds a whole lot more water. It's gotten a lot more weight. When you say what happened recently, let's be clear. Let's, let's not um, cut around corners. What do you mean? I'm an, I'm an infectious disease physician, and, and I've been involved with research for years and, and, and looking at uh, uh, outbreaks and pandemics. And never before have I, in my experience, had a situation where the government, which is supposed to be a trusted source for addressing the issue of its people, has been in so much conflict with the scientists and the people who are most knowledgeable about how you take care of things like this virus. I, I've never seen this before, honestly. I've worked within, I've worked and been at the NIH. I've worked mm -hmm. and been at the CDC, worked with individuals there. All of them. I've never seen this happen like this before. Wow. Well, I want to thank you for being a part of today's conversation. Thank you for introducing and where you're going to be coming from. At this point, I'd like to bring in my next guest. And because of all of the things that are going on, um, the most pressing right now is our children. 
Um, I, I really am concerned for my grandson, uh, for my nieces and nephews who are in school. I'm concerned for uh, all of the people who, who are involved in what it takes to make a school and a school district run. And with people going back to school, one of the questions I wanted to know from someone who is actually on the front line is, you know, are we prepared for that? And thanks to my village again, especially my friend, Judy. Judy, thank you. When we put the call out for an educator, you quickly rang the bell and said, I have someone. And so I'd really like to introduce you guys to someone who has been on the front line of our children's education. She has stood up for those who teach our, our kids. She's been a terrific um, leader in the field and she understands the importance of it. And so guys, I wanna take time to welcome from the DMV. This is a leader amongst leaders, Miss Heather Harrison. Harrison, Miss Harris, how, look how I'm messing your name up, Heather. Uh, how you doing? Please forgive me. Will you introduce yourself? Tell them a little bit about your background and why this is important to you. No worries. Hi there, uh, Ricky, and hello, <laughs> panel guest. Um, it's nice to be with you this evening. My name is Heather Hairston, and I am previously was a principal in DC Public Schools. Um, War 7, shout out to my school, yay. Um, I've been an educator since 1999 and have worked in public elementary schools in Washington, D.C., in PG County, and also in West Philadelphia. Um, my experience has mostly been in early childhood and elementary education. Um, I have a master's from Trinity College in elementary education and a master's in supervision and leadership. I'm currently working on my doctorate at the University of Pennsylvania in educational leadership and organizational change. Um, my focus for my research is significantly around safety and sense of belonging for adolescent black girls. Um, the work that I have been able to do, not only as an educator, but also as a school leader, has often revolved around three basic pillars, uh, one around engaging families, two around providing equitable access for all kinds of students, and three in building community. And so um, my school, my former school has been able to get a lot of recognition for that. Um, I'm excited today to just bring a different perspective. Um, I think when we think about the importance of schools and the important role that schools play in our communities and in our world, it's important for us to balance what we know about how challenging schools are to run even without a pandemic. And then when you add on the social unrest and the, the racial conflict that's happening, you also then add on the trauma of not being in school significantly. Okay. Um, educators, all kinds, teachers, custodians, paraprofessionals, school psychologists, cafeteria workers have all been impacted by this pandemic. And so, uh, today, I hope to just share a little bit to maybe offer some tips that I would say to friends and family, and to also remind folks that despite how dismal things may seem, we are a people who are overcomers. 
Come we on. are people who know how to um, reach out to our networks. We know how to solve our own problems given the right time and the capacity. And that instead of looking at this all as an obstacle, we should look at it as an opportunity to provide accurate equity to all kids. If we know that education is a tool for liberation, then we need to use this and leverage this moment so that teachers and students and communities can feel empowered. Um, wow. So I'm glad to be here today and I hope that my voice can um, stimulate some conversations and encourage some folks to get active specifically in their school communities. Well, trust me when I tell you, you are going to stimulate some conversation because is there anything more important than our children? And I've been asked no less than 20 times, is it safe? I, I don't know the answer. Is it safe for our kids to go back into the classroom? Is it safe uh, for our kids to come home from school? Um, you know, having been around other children, having been around administration, is it, is it safe? And I'm hoping from your insight and experience, you can tell us not only is it safe, is it a good idea to put our kids and those who teach them and care for them back in the environment? Guys, as you can see, we, we've already introduced two very powerful guests. I mean, and they are ready. I want to now introduce to you my good friend. Um, I've been blessed with uh, a, a circle of friends that I call my accountability team. They help me reach for more. They help me understand more. And they help me to to go after more sometimes, even at, at self-cost. And no one has done that more than my friend. He is a survivor. He is a scientist. He is a medical doctor. But he, most importantly, he is a good human. And so I want to introduce to you somebody that means the world to me, my good friend, Dr. Courtney Houchin. Courtney, how are you, sir? Let's get Courtney in here. Courtney, we need to get you unmuted. While we get Courtney unmuted, uh, hold on one second, everyone. Courtney, you're still muted. We need you to unmute, unmute partner. Can you hear me now? Yeah, man, we can hear you and see you. How you doing, doctor? All right, thank you. First, I want to uh, apologize in advance. I'm visually impaired. So if I'm looking kind of crazy, uh, I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> tell, look, tell mama to take that light off of you a little bit. You'll be okay. That There's a shadow over rocking you. But I want to thank you, Courtney. I know how busy you've been uh, in the lab trying to help come up with a cure for this virus. I know that your lab was tagged as one of those labs that is involved in the cure. And a lot of times, uh, we don't know who's looking for the cure. All we hear is that it's happening. I know your lab and you are connected with people and, and working in unison with others to try and find a way out of this thing. Not only that, Courtney, uh, because of your past and, and, and one of those things you and I laugh about sometimes that you add it to yourself, um, there is a segment of our population that is in real danger. And that is those with pre-existing conditions with uh, compromised immune systems. And as a MD doctor and scientist, we're gonna need your help, partner. Can you take time first to tell us a little bit about your street creds? Cause you got all y'all guys packing. I, 
I, all y'all, I need, I should have checked y'all for knowledge weapons at the door because y'all got resumes about that long. Uh, Courtney, tell us a little bit about yourself, man, and then we're going to talk a little bit. All right. Well, first, thank you very much for the uh, uh, ambitious introduction. <laughs> uh, I, my name is Courtney Houchin, uh, Dr. Courtney Houchin. I'm a physician scientist, and in full disclosure, I am the chief of gastroenterology at the University of Oklahoma, and I am a founder of a biotech company called Core. And none of what I say or uh, the facts that I'd say have anything to do with either the University of Oklahoma or CORE. So that's my disclosure. Okay, now uh, I, I'm from Brooklyn, New York. I went to Howard undergrad. I pledged Alpha there in 79, pledged Dr. Virgil too. And, uh, <laughs> uh, I remember. <laughs> uh, uh, I uh, went on to um, uh, Howard, I, I mean, I went on to uh, Atlanta University to get my master's in cell biology. Then I went to Temple University to get my MD. Uh, I did internal medicine at the University of Maryland in Baltimore. I did my gastroenterology fellowship at WashU in St. Louis. And now uh, I was faculty there for 10 years, and now I'm at the University of Oklahoma. So I tell you all that to let you know that I've been all over the country. So I, I, I've lived in a lot of cities. And I've learned a lot, and I'm getting countryer as I go along. So this is a good thing. I am, a, as, doc, as Rick Terry said, I'm a, a transplant survivor, one-year post-kidney transplant, and I'm doing much better than I was. Uh, and, uh, but I do basic scientific research on cancer, and more recently, since the COVID shutdown, I've been looking at the role of the COVID-19 virus on the gastrointestinal tract, and I've learned a lot about COVID. And, and one of the things that I recognize is that people who are immunosuppressed, such as I am, and many, many others, and people with pre-existing diseases are much more susceptible to the ravages of this virus. And hopefully during the uh, discussion, we'll talk more and more about that. Well, Courtney, I, I want to thank you again for, for joining us. I want to thank you for all that you, you've done and all that you do. Um, and the fact that um, you and, 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 and another guest, I don't know if they want to reveal, so I won't. But you two have things that you are dealing with that are personal that could, could really give you an excuse to get out of the fight. And yet, not being selfish uh, or, or even practical, you're still in this fight for other people. So this tells me, before we even get started in this conversation, how important this battle is that we all get involved, we all get engaged, and we all continue to spread the word and educate. Because you could easily, Courtney, tap out. You, you could have, and yet you haven't. And so as we begin to, to as we continue, uh, I want to introduce my next guest before we get into the conversation. She has been with me on the radio show, Success in the Evening with Coach Ricky Terry. She is a member of the flight crew, and God knows I miss my flight crew. She has worked in the DMV in the public schools as a board member for charter uh, schools. My good friend who is an investor and realtor, Monique Malabat. Monique, how are you? Yeah, I'm just, I, I'm just, I'm not, come on. 
I got hey, come on. Hey, Mo. Hi, how are you guys doing today? <laughs> I, I am doing well. I am doing well. Guys, if y'all don't know, you're gonna hear me call a Mo, you're gonna hear me call a Mo Mo and something. When, when she's rolling, we call her Mo Money. Mo is one of the top realtors in D.C., recently voted mm -hmm. into the top 100. Congratulations, Mo. Uh, Thank you. And, and I'm really proud of what you do. Mo is going to wear a couple of hats here today. Uh, one, because she is in the school system, and, and we'll talk about what she does there. Uh, and two, because she is in the real estate industry. Uh, and there's some things we want to know about you know, getting property and making investments. And Mo, we're glad you're here. Mo, why don't you introduce yourself and then we'll talk for a minute. Okay. Hi guys, my name is Monique Malabet. And um, as uh, Coach Ricky Terry just said, I am a real estate agent. I'm also a real estate investor. Uh, I have been in real estate now for about 10 years, right after I graduated from Hampton University. Woo -woo. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, after I graduated from Hampton University, I, I had invested in my first property. And then after that, like like four or five years later, I ended up getting licensed and I continue to invest in real estate properties. I also do other types of investments when it comes to um, different type of uh, real estate investments. So I'll invest with a group of people when they want to renovate and fix properties. And I also do wholesaling on the side. So I do a number of things in the real estate field. Uh, I'm also licensed as a life insurance agent as well. And um, I have, I am a part of the Prince, Prince George's County Public School Business Management and Finance Advisory Board. I actually run the board. And I'm also a part of the NAF Academy of Finance Advisory Board. And that's over at Kitt DC uh, College Preparatory School. And um, of course I've been on a success in the evening have, I have my own podcast as well, and um, I do. I speak a lot on panels, on podcast, on different people's podcasts as well. Just talking about how we can really bridge the racial wealth divide. Uh, that's really my passion, and um, I am with everything going on as we see. There's more conversations finally coming up about racism, and um, I'm a big advocate on talking about not really just talking about, but just really pushing the agenda that racism is a health, uh, uh, basically is a public health crisis as well. So um, yes, we have COVID right now, but we still have racism and it has not gone anywhere since the founding of America. Well, Mo, I want to thank you for coming in. And as I said, you wear many, many hats. Um, and Mo, in full disclosure, is it okay if we tell about our... Um, yeah. I'm going to use the relationship. Why don't you tell them, Mo? Tell them about our relationship beyond the radio, if you don't mind. Um, so we actually do, I mean, he's my coach as well. So <laughs> he is helping me when it comes to a number of different things. There's a lot of different uh, things that I'm working on right now, different platforms that I am launching. And I, I just want to do, I want to do a lot more in terms of helping out our younger community, getting them to invest starting to have these conversations at a young age instead of waiting until we are adults to have these conversations. Uh, there is a huge racial wealth divide. And if we do not start making some real changes in the next couple of years, we're not going to have any wealth. Um, Mo, I'm going to stop you right there. I want to thank you for joining us. I can't wait to get into the conversation. Uh, but at this point, I want to bring in the doctor from the other side of the coast, from the West Coast. 
He is Dr. Bedford Palmer II, PhD, and he is the author of the book, Why Daddy, Why Am I Brown? Did I say that right, doctor? Why is my skin brown? Or why am I brown? I keep messing up your title. Dr. Uh, uh, Bedford, would you please introduce yourself? There it is. That, who changed my angle? People changing my angles. <laughs> You don't mess me up. Dr. Uh, Bedford, please introduce yourself and tell us about your book. Thank sure, you. I can uh, see you now. Okay. All right. Can y'all hear me? Yes, um, I had to get now. my mic out. So, um, yeah, my name is Dr. Bedford Palmer. I am a, a licensed psychologist. Um, I am also the chair of the counseling department at St. Mary's College of California. And similarly, I, you know, I speak for myself, not for the department. Um, so yeah, I, my book is um, Daddy, Why Am I Brown? A Healthy Conversation uh, Around Skin Color and Family. Uh, and that, that book is basically, um, as, a, as a black psychologist, as a social justice psychologist, um, I kind of came up with the idea of writing a book because I was talking to my wife and she's an educator and she was telling me stories about how young, young kids would come up to her like kindergarten, first grade age, and there'd always kind of be this cycle of the brown kids. They would learn about color in class and then invariably some white kid would say something to the extent of your skin looks like poop or your skin looks like dirt or something to that extent. And so I, trying to work that out for myself as opposed to yelling and screaming at a little baby kid, um, I thought maybe we should teach folks how to talk about this a little bit better and bring in some of the things that um, that I've learned over the years in terms of uh, speaking about race and culture and ethnicity um, in training folks. Um, so just to give you all a little bit of background of where I'm from, I'm from San, I'm a born and raised from San Diego, but I grew, but I, I live in Oakland. Uh, went to UC Irvine, got my degree in anthropology and a minor in African American studies, Long Beach State, got a master's in psychology and then got my doctorate in Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. Uh, so I've been I've been in the country too uh, for the folks who are wondering about that and um, I yeah I currently teach uh, master's level counselors uh, that's MFTs and uh, licensed professional counselors school school counselors school psychologists and uh, try to kind of uh, I go out and I do consulting work and try to help people understand how to be better towards each other around multiculturalism social justice and diversity. Well, my first question to you, Doc. How busy are we? How busy are you at this time of just helping, getting people to understand where we are? How busy are you? I'm always busy. I mean, this is this is since the was it March 16th, March 17th. This has been my office. I ain't really, I social distance and I stay my butt at home, and uh, I get on the Zoom and talk to folks. Uh, I mean, honestly, with the uprising that's been going on on top of the pandemic. Um, it, suddenly a lot of people who weren't listening want to listen now. And a lot of people who, um, who, who didn't find us to be demand, in demand, we are finding ourselves to be in demand. One of the big things I'd like to just say to folks, if you're out there, if you're a black person out there doing this kind of labor, increase your fees. You know what I'm saying? Like demand goes up, supply, supply is down, charge people more because you have to at some point figure out how to differentiate between folks. Um, and if a big company is asking for your time as opposed to someone else, then the big company needs to pay for your time. 
so that you can have time for everybody else so that you can do that free stuff for people and 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 still make sure you pay your bills and all that good stuff but yeah i'm it's it's a very busy time um there's a lot of people in crisis a lot of people who need help a lot of people who um who are hurting because of um an artificial epidemic that's you know caused by poor leadership and um and a, a ongoing you know in psychology we call it the maafa which is like the black holocaust like we we never have dealt with the reality that that's what happened to us and this country refuses to deal with that reality and every time we talk about black lives matter or civil rights or like say her or say his name we're really just we're really calling out that pain and that trauma that was caused that no one wants to take responsibility for well let me let me do this i'm going back up uh heather in in what doc just said in dealing with the trauma of this our kids are coming back to school and all they've heard about is this COVID-19, this COVID-19 and the impact. And they're watching the conversations their parents are having. They are watching the, um, the reactions of people on television. Are we, should we be concerned about that, the mental health of our children coming into this? I mean, of course, we should absolutely be concerned about the mental health and wellness of our children. And we have to also understand that our mental health and wellness individually is directly connected to our communities, right? And so even if students are having individual problems, they are witnessing cousins and friends and aunties and uncles and people that are within their network who are also experiencing this. And so I think what we have to do is we have to first get honest about what is happening. And I, when I think about the way that these current times are, are playing out, it's because in a lot of ways we refuse to be honest. Um, we refuse to be honest about the numbers and honest about what's happening and honest about inequities. And we wanna make digital learning seem like it is about a device divide and not about the huge inequities that exist in our schools and in our systems. I think. One thing that I would say is that parents need to remember that one, two things. First, that children are always listening. They're always listening and are always mm -hmm. learning and they're always picking up cues. They can tell by the way conversations change. They can tell when you're whispering. They can tell when you're yelling. So they are also experiencing that. I think the second thing I would say is that we have to remember, and I'm sure my, my panelists friends will, will agree that the brain is malleable. We know that the brain can change. We know that with the right supports, that the right conditions can be created so that folks can overcome their trauma, deal with their trauma in productive ways, not allow negative things to paralyze them or allow them to further aggravate additional trauma that they may, may, um, that they may experience. And so I think when we think about safety, when we think about the mental health and wellness specifically for our children, we have to also understand that schools are places that do more than just educate. 30 million Such children are fed by schools every day. Uh, schools are a hub of connecting folks to mental health services, to medical services, to doctor's appointments, to additional services, to extracurricular activities, which are directly connected to potentially their tickets into schools and colleges and other programs and scholarships. And so we can't look at any of this in isolation. And I, and I think that that's why it's important that the, the panel today 
talks from a different perspective because at the end of the day, all gaps in mental health and wellness are going to show up in school performance. Gaps in well, school performance, I'm sorry. No, I was gonna say, and thank you. Uh, I wanted to cut in because we have a special guest. Um, well, I apologize, they're trying to connect and now. We have a special guest, but I'm gonna go back to you because I want you to finish what you were talking about there, if you don't mind. Yeah, I just, I, I was just gonna wrap up and say, I think what I wanna underscore is that our approach to dealing with this needs to be cross-secular. Okay. Cross-sector. We can't just look at things that are happening in schools and not connect that directly to what's happening in communities. We can't just look at things that are happening in communities and not connect that directly to employment and to access to education and to healthcare and to wellness and to food deserts and to all of these things. And so if we are going to approach this in a way that is productive, then we need a multi-tiered approach so that we are not just focused on one thing and being honest about the ways that all of these things are interconnected. And before you put me on mute, I just want to say big up, <laughs> shout out to Hampton University. I realized uh, they were doing all this Howard stuff. Now, shout out to Howard, but I am also a graduate of Hampton University, QT3. Big up my home by the sea. Uh-oh, yeah. we got another Hampton night in, in there. Monique is from Hampton. I got, I got a daughter that went to Hampton. So Hampton is in the house and represented. Uh, we, have a, we have another panelist on the phone was unable to join us by video. Uh, I am extremely happy that she was able to join. Uh, she is family, as far as I am concerned. And what I love about my next guest is that she has been a supporter of Black men, especially Black fathers. Um, she is one of the biggest cheerleaders I have ever seen for us. And oftentimes, uh, we don't get recognized as being fathers or, or just decent men. And I can tell you for over 20 years now, she has done that and been an uplifting, encouraging person. And I am extremely happy to say she is also a member of my accountability team, Dr. Jan Hutchinson. Jan, how are you? Jan. I'm fine, Rick, how are you? Can I you am hear me? Doing, I am doing well. Uh, Jan is, uh, Jan, won't you introduce yourself? We've been talking about street creds, meaning your resume. And Jan, your resume is deep, not to mention you amongst the who's who of African-Americans. That, that is just awesome that you are amongst the who's who of African-Americans because of your work both uh, here in this country and internationally. Would you give us a little bit of your street creds, Jan? Well, Rick, thank you for including me uh, today. I hope you can hear me. Um, well, I've, I've been incredibly blessed. That's all I can say. And so uh, to whom much is given, much is expected. Uh, yes, I'm a native Chicagoan. Um, I was educated on the West Coast at Stanford and went to medical school at Cincinnati. And yes, I have been in school overseas as well. And I've also been fortunate enough to make several uh, mission trips uh, to serve in, in uh, other parts of the world. Um, this is an exciting, exciting topic. Uh, there's so much to talk about with the kids. My medical training has uh, led me first to pediatrics. Uh, kids are basically my world, every aspect of, of childhood, uh, which then led me on to uh, 
become a child psychiatrist after studying adult psychiatry. Child psychiatry is a subspecialty of adult psychiatry, and lots of pediatricians uh, pursue child psychiatry uh, residency fellowships because it's so much a part of pediatrics. My interest in kids is is completely global. Uh, it's total. Uh, and as we're having this discussion now about the COVID virus, I think that's uh, what you wanted to focus on today, Rick, and thank you very much for that. You know, that brings up so many things from, from, a, from the biology of kids uh, in terms of their immune system, biochemical issues, genetic issues, uh, mental issues. All of these are, are very, very deeply intertwined. To say nothing of the fact that our children uh, are hit with so much, so much of the time, as many people uh, often say, it's not just the COVID virus that's out here. We have the racism virus. Uh, which is being powerfully addressed through the Black Lives Matter movement. So our kids uh, have tremendous exposure. This is a very special uh, piece of time for all of us, but especially for for our children. So uh, having said that, Rick, I will just stop and give give the floor back to yourself. Well, I want to thank you. Well, I want to thank you, Jan, for, for joining. I know you are, you are busy, as, as most are during this time. My question for you, Jan, is how should, how should we communicate to our kids who are being bombarded with this information about everything that's going on? And I am really concerned about their concerns of returning back to the classroom. I mean, we've had them sheltered, protected, uh, but yet they have been seeing these images, hearing it, and, and now they've got to go into this big bad world that we've been talking about that is taking 150,000, uh, I don't know, what is the latest count, but it's taking a lot of lives. What, what should we, or how should we communicate to our kids if we're sending them back to school? You know, I have a couple of uh, concerns about the kids and, and this virus, especially. One concern I have is that uh, we have very limited testing. So really our information regarding the, the incidence and prevalence of this virus is incredibly uh, deficient. Reasonably, this virus uh, has already was recently noted by the CDC is far more prevalent than we think that it is. And this is important in the context of, of knowing about our kids and what to say to them. Uh, I'm concerned about kids. Uh, uh, let me just say, in, in order for us to deal effectively with our kids, we as the adults are responsible to have the information. So that means, for example, we have to understand that kids do not have immune systems at an adult level until much later in childhood. Kids are basically born with no immune system. Um, and so kids do not uh, gain immunologic parity with adults. It depends on who you, who you reference, but generally until they're 11 or 12 years old, which means that kids are actually pretty vulnerable, uh, more than uh, has been acknowledged, and I feel has been under-acknowledged. Well, uh, that me... gets back to the fact... Now that gets back to the fact that we have inadequate 
testing, we have inadequate information in general. Now, that's one, you know, that's just referencing the biology. Moving on to talking to kids about the virus, about school and so forth. You know, I like to start with, with kids in terms of talking to kids about any condition, any problem. I, also, I like to start with what does the kid know about whatever is going on? What do they understand? You know, I like to meet kids as much as possible where they are, and I think that that's where we as adults might begin. Well, what I does like the that. child understand? Let, let me jump in real quick, yeah, Jack, because I, I like that. And I want to go back to Dr. Virgil, if I can, and I also want to bring in Dr. Palmer, because both of you guys, uh, this is important. First, Dr. Virgil, if you were speaking to young kids, um, given your vast knowledge, how would you communicate how they can continue to protect themselves and, and be strong enough to, to, to get through to them, but kind enough to, to, for them to understand? Can you unmute yourself and tell me uh, or talk to them, if you don't mind, to, to our children. You're, you're on mute, doctor. I think that um, uh, it, uh, Dr. Hutchinson brought up a really good point when she talked about knowledge about what the kids know themselves. Um, um, I have this experience because I have been, right now, um, <laughs> we, we've been sheltered in place uh, for a very long time. And we've done that with two of our grandkids, one eight, one twelve. And so I've had the experience of being able to talk to them about the situation. And especially given, as you may have been talking about me earlier, the fact that I'm currently in the process of receiving treatment for uh, cancer. Um, I am, I had chemotherapy followed by radiation therapy. I'm in the, I think uh, I will be doing my last week of radiation therapy beginning next week. And so it has been, they have actually shown some very, very um, um, uh, serious concern for me. They, they're constantly making sure I have my mask. They're constantly making sure that I get social distance. I've even had my eight-year-old granddaughter pull me away from somebody that walked past me in one of the stores to say, Papa, you need to be away from the person. Um, and I think that in answering your question, how do you talk to them? You talk to them honestly. This is one basis of everything we're dealing with here. And if we're going to deal with the issue, the complex public undertaking of dealing with COVID-19, we have to deal with it from trust. And that means on every level. And so with our children, we have to be very honest with them. And we have to let them know that there are risks and that there are benefits. And we have to also explain to them, explain to them like we do, why they're having to wear a mask, why it's important to wash your hands. We talk to them about what germs are and, uh, and explain to them how they can actually get them and then how they can prevent themselves from getting it. I find that when you provide them with all the information in that kind of way and simplify it, they are actually, to me, in a better state of mind because they feel that they are prepared. They feel like, it. in fact, I noticed it from my grandkids, they are excited about getting on the phone and talking to some of my other grandkids and explaining to them what actually COVID, the coronavirus is and how that they can protect themselves. So if, if to answer your question, I would say honesty is the way we address it. We also talk to them about all the issues that they can use to help protect them so they can feel safe and actually explain to them why it's important to be that way. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Bedford, what, what say you? How, how would you go by explaining uh, from your standpoint, even using your book to help children at least be able to calm down a lot because they're concerned too. They're hearing 
that they're being ushered back to the classroom. They're hearing that teachers uh, are starting to uh, petition to say not to come back into the classroom. What do you say we do here? And then we're gonna come to you again, Heather, if you don't mind. Dr. Bradford? Um, so, you know, I got two last names as a first name and a last name. So I was like, uh, a lot of folks do Dr. Bedford, but it's, it's but um, anyway, the, I think, I can't really add much to, 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 I mean, the being honest and being, you know, giving the background information, I think is basically what you have to do with kids. Uh, trying to hide stuff, trying to make a taboo. As soon as you tell them that they can't do something, then that's what they want to go do. I mean, that's a, that's a normal curiosity, normal stuff about being a kid. And especially understanding if you're at a specific, before you get to about 10 or 11 years old, kids can't even really think in a concrete way that allows them to see like full danger. You know, it's like, it has to be on the, the power of your word. You know, mm. and, and, and that's just the, the norm. So I said it's dangerous, therefore it's dangerous. Don't do what I told you not to do. And then kids kind of go with that because they're rule-based in a lot of ways. And if you give them background, then that gives them a lot of, um, that gives them some kind of power to it and explanation to it. Um, the way I approached it in terms of talking about race, because the, the book is, you know, thinking about like these kind of harder concepts. I, I don't think that you, you, oversimplify it to the point where it doesn't make sense to them. So like, if you're going to talk about a virus, explain what viruses are, you know, explain what, what it means to, to get infected with something and like how you present, how, how you prevent that, like talk about things that they can relate to. So you've had a cold before, right? You've had the flu before. Well, this is really much worse than that. And you know, if you don't want to get sick like that, then you need to do these particular things. And you know that, the same way you brush your teeth every night and you've learned how to do that. Well, we got to wash your hands after you do all these different things. Um, and you, you kind of make them steps and rules. And I think that, you know, we have um, teachers here, you know, if you, if you make a, a rule-based game that has steps in it, kids will, will not only embrace that, but they'll kind of hold you to it even when you ain't feeling like doing it anymore. You know, so it's like, no, we're supposed to line up like this, Mr. So, you know, they, they'll do that for you. Um, so I, I think, you, you you do talk about it, you you do try to make it accessible to them, and you try to give them as much information as they're willing to kind of take in about it. Um, I think the the on the other side of it about how they feel about going to school, I also think you have to be honest about that. And you have to be honest about that to yourself too, because right now what we have this thing going in this country is this rhetoric of opening up and uh, everything needs to open, everything needs to open. And there's what I don't think a lot of people understand is that if you say something to folks enough times, then something that's ridiculous will sound like it's okay, you know? And wow. so, you know, we really, especially as black people need to understand that until the physicians tell us that it's cool to go back, we need to be careful about what the greater, you know, the larger white community is saying is okay. Cause they're happy to put us at risk, you know? Um, Today, uh, Herman Cain passed away. If y'all have, I'm wondering if folks heard about that. So this man who's dedicated himself to this Republican Party piece, he goes to, he wants to show that he supports them so much that he goes to Tulsa and goes to this man's rally and doesn't wear a mask. And then a month later, he passes away. And I promise you, they're not going to talk about him. You know, I, I, I want to say something about that, if you don't Coach mind. Terry, Coach Terry, can I interject right here, please, for a second? Please, go ahead. Go ahead. Yes, I, I, I'm, I'm in full agreement with what was just said. And 
I think this is perfect timing because although we need a multidisciplinary approach, especially with our children, but there also needs to be a prioritization approach. Nothing can be done until we stop the spread of this virus. The virus cannot spread without infecting a human being. If you do not come in contact with someone with the virus, the virus cannot infect you. We must prevent that initial piece before we can even begin to address any of these other issues. No one, absolutely no one knows what this virus can and will do. These children who are being uh, uh, infected without, quote, symptoms may have long-term neurologic, cardiovascular, pulmonary, kidney, GI effects that no one can predict. The receptors for this virus is in every tissue in the body. And no, this virus is new and nobody with certainty can say anything, let alone a politician. But what, what is certain, if you protect yourself, you stay away from as many people as you can, you avoid large contacts, this virus will be gone. I want to, before we bring Helda into this, I want to share something, Courtney, that you shared with me during one of our coaching sessions. And that was, because I, I had some concerns about this thing. Should we, you know, my wife and I walk uh, almost every day. We try to, in our neighborhoods, we social distance, we wear our masks. Uh, and we were telling you about it early in, in, into this uh, thing. And you said to me recently, whatever you have been doing to stay alive and not get sick, it's important that you continue to do that. And as everyone has said uh, about it, we've continued to regularly wash our hands. I'm concerned that we've been in this so long, we're letting our guard down. We don't forget to put on our mask. We don't forget the hand sanitizer. We don't forget that when we've gone to the stores as we have to, we still come home and get out of those clothes and get them in the washing machine. And these are just habits we've started, Dr. Virgil, since you first came on our show and told us what we were up against. And we weren't even at a large number of, of death and New York was just beginning to spike when you gave us that information. How important is it that we continue these healthy habits? And what emphasis can you put on it, Dr. Virgil? Uh, I think it's, it's very important that we continue these habits. And uh, I'll go back to what Dr. Palmer said. When you're told something over and over again, it starts to sound like it's normal, it's okay. And you're being told over and over again <laughs> in some of this media that you don't need masks. You're being told over and over again that uh, you don't need to worry about the virus itself because it's going to disappear. And can you imagine? You're being told that this virus is just going to disappear. Courtney, Dr. Houchin, outlined for you exactly from a medical standpoint and from a standpoint of learning um, and experience, how this virus will disappear. It cannot survive unless it goes from one host to another. And if you can prevent that, that is like ending a certain, like a birth line. It, it ends the line of that virus. And so that's what we have to do. What I tell people all the time, because I run into individuals who they who uh, do the things to protect themselves, hand washing, let's say it again, hand washing over and over, hand washing, wearing the mask, all those. Different individuals do this at different levels. 
But what I say to an individual is, every single time that you do these things, you do these preventive measures, you are helping and you're increasing your risk that you will not get this virus, you will not get ill from this virus, and unfortunately, like Herman Cain, you won't succumb to this virus. Well, one of the things I want to remind people, out of all of the people that have gone to the uh, rallies that have been put on by um, the president, out of all those who have been in his company that have been reported sick, I want to look you in the eye and say, out of all of them, only one is recorded dead. He happens to be an African-American man. I have no idea of his medical history or background, but I want you to understand how, how this thing has a scope on us that out of all the people in the president's circle, all of those who have been with him, out of all of those, including uh, his son's girlfriend, only one person has died, an African-American. Guys, died wake yet. up. Died yet, and he had cancer. Uh Yes. And I would say, I would say based on, again, my experience with dealing with viral infections such as this and pandemics, there are others who are infected, uh, Mr. Terry, Coach Terry. We don't know of them. So when you say only one has died, I, I would really truly caveat that with uh, only one that we know of and the level publicly has passed away. Thank you, so Doctor. Now, let's, let's talk about the discipline needed in the classroom. And, and Heather, I, I got to ask you, uh, I've been in the classroom. I've, I've, I've gone to my kids' school. I've, I've been in the schools to do presentations. I, I don't see a lot of discipline because we are talking about children. Are our teachers and administrators capable of ensuring the safety of our children uh, this isn't the playground we're talking about where rough football, you know, can be moved. This is a virus that jumps, that spreads, uh, that is airborne. How can anyone convince us or how can we discipline our kids in the classroom not to share, not to touch? What, what do we do? How do we do it? Yeah, so I think, you know, teachers and educators are capable of amazing things. And if they were forced to find a way to open school and find a way to social distance, I'm sure that they would because they are in this business to solve problems and because they care about our kids. So could they do it? Absolutely, if they had to. Should they do it? Absolutely not. I think the problem is the things that we would have to put in place in order for students and teachers to be able to keep and ensure that their students and that their colleagues were safe is beyond our scope. The amount of money that will be required in order to make sure that teachers are safe, that equipment is safe. Um, we often are always talking about students and teachers and forget the host of other folks who we rely on to make sure that schools run every day. We talk about our custodians, we talk about our educational aides, we talk about bus drivers, we talk about groundskeepers, we talk about those folks in the offices who have to come in contact. If you think about it, one teacher and 20 kids socially distancing, if you had the right money, you had the right equipment, you had the right time, you had the right facilities, perhaps it could be possible. And I'm in no way saying that it couldn't be, but I think we have to be more honest about what it would require for that to happen. And we also have to understand that time is not on our side. 
this is a this next the end of this next week is the beginning of August, right? Saturday's August first. And so when you think about the way that the school calendar is made and how folks are thinking that they can provide these supports, provide these trainings, ensure that schools are, the facilities are up to par, um, it, it just doesn't feel like enough time. And then again, it always gets back to inequity. Some schools may be able to do it. Some schools have small populations, outdoor learning spaces, small classes, newer buildings, better facilities. That's fine. They may be able to come up with a plan. But until we could say that we could ensure that every single student and every single teacher in every single building within that district would be safe, then I think it would be egregious and neglectful to do so. Um, I think too, that we have to also be thoughtful about what happens if we say no schools. Um, there are lots of school districts where folks are creating these pandemic pods, where they are coming together in a small network of folks because they know that their children will not be going to school or have some kind of hybrid model. And they are using these as networks in order to make sure that students get support and can do homework and are able to complete assignments. And so again, we can't talk about pandemic pods until we talk about institutional racism and talk about the ways that those pods will more likely be people who are in networks who do not include black and brown children. That black and brown children are those who are situated closest to poverty those are the ones whose families are more likely essential workers who would be putting themselves at higher risk by not going to school. And then we don't want these pandemic pods and these closures to turn into the new resegregation of schools, which we already know is a problem across this country. And so I think to answer your question, Coach Terry, can teachers do it? Absolutely. I've seen teachers teach children who people thought could never do anything and come to higher amazing heights. But should they be able, should they have to do it? My answer would be no. Well, you know, I wanna... Coach Terry, I apologize. You probably never want to ask me to be on your show again. <laughs> Courtney, you are always welcome to cut it. But I, I, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna just reiterate. These experiments have already been performed. We opened up Georgia with quote unquote social distancing, look what happened. We opened up Florida early, look what happened. We opened up Oklahoma early, look what happened. We opened up Texas early, look what happened. Why do we think opening up for children will have a different result? Well, I, I'm, I'm of the mindset that I'd like to be able to say I don't have any skin in the game, and so why, why matter? Why it matters if you don't have children going to school is because if we don't take care of them, who's going to take care of us? Who's going to watch over them? And I think it is irresponsible. That means they have to stay home. Yes, and I think it is irresponsible to put that much pressure on uh, teachers and administrators when they are worried about their, their own families. And so right. I want to go to Jan. Jan, from a mental standpoint, you, you're with us. You've heard all this. What else will you add to this, Jan? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, I mean, I've heard so many positive things. And, and you know, there's, it's a complex issue, obviously. Uh, I'm familiar with the situation in which uh, a parent is reluctant to send their uh, preschooler, toddler, 
Foster's daycare because the kids who are attending this particular daycare are all children of people who are frontline responders who are taking care of COVID patients. And so, you know, these can be incredibly complex issues. It is also true that there are differentials between public schools and private schools. Private schools obviously have more resources, and they may be better able to segregate uh, children and and teachers into pods or or whatever. Um, Public schools, however, have many fewer resources, and those resources have been threatened at this point. We We must also remember that uh, more children who attend public schools are black and Latin and Native American, uh, and so are therefore more vulnerable to having the virus um, and are probably less able to be protected in an academic setting. You know, I mean, I, I think that this very much uh, goes to individual situations. Uh, I've seen, uh, I've noticed that teachers' unions are rising around the country, protesting uh, the reestablishment of school as we have known it. And I suspect that they're probably right. It is very hard to defend against this virus. And as I said before, I'm constantly concerned about the vulnerability of children given their, their underdeveloped immune system. There's an instructive case out of Australia, actually, in which uh, school was reconvened. Turns out one of the teachers uh, contracted the virus. It spread like wildfire throughout the the child and and teacher population. And so now the entire community in this Australian state is on lockdown. It only takes one person. And again, we, we don't have good resources still in terms of, of testing for the virus and or the antibodies. So there's any number of us, most of us who have the virus, are walking around undiagnosed, so it would seem. So I think we have to be extremely careful and cautious. If there is some way to make this happen safely, yeah, okay. Uh, but if not, and if the teacher is not comfortable in the setting and the parents are not comfortable with having their children in the setting, to me, those things are, are Trump factors. Well, I, I will tell you, Jan, and I, and I said this to you in private conversation, my, my biggest concern, and, and we'll get into it when we, when we come back, my biggest concern is the possibility for post-traumatic stress through all of this and, and how, because this isn't an easy thing we're dealing with. I mean, as adults, we can kind of compartmentalize to the best we can. We've learned how to do these things. But for, you know, I have a son. My youngest is, is 18, just turned. He, he, he didn't get to, to do all of the things that, that kids were able to do going, you know, getting out of school and moving forward, uh, not been able to celebrate. We've not even been able to properly say goodbye to those we've lost. And so I am really concerned with this post-traumatic stress that is going to come like an avalanche, um, which will probably be the size of, Monique, the the avalanche that's coming when it comes to dealing with uh, the rent and the mortgage payments and the brick and mortar payment for our business. Uh, They're already making decisions or have made decisions about 
what money may be available to us. Monique, when, when we start dealing with this, uh, this is yet, as, as, as Jan said, this is yet a, another tsunami that's going to hit us like nobody's business. How, can, how do you think we can prepare in terms of that? Because if the, parent, if the kids see the parents stressing at home, and this all leads back to our children, if they see us fussing and arguing over money, and that happens in a normal, imagine the, the, the tension now in the home. What is it like in terms of should we be, you know, buying a home right now? And I know you're a realtor. You're, you're probably going to always think it's always a good time to buy a home. Should we take that money and pay six months of our rent at an establishment, a business establishment? You're a small business minded person. What should we be doing and how? We're going to unmute you, Monique. Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, well, it, if you, so yes, I am a realtor, but I'm also an investor as well. And I do analyze and look at the, like I said, the racial wealth divide and how the impacts of having zero wealth can have a huge effect on our community and not just on a black community, but on America as a whole. Uh, as of right now, we are seeing historically record low um, interest rates right now. So there are a lot of people that have the ability uh, to take advantage of the housing market, they are. Um, so the market in most places is pretty hot right now. Uh, in the April, in March and April, we had the stay-at-home orders. So it, the market did take a, take a dip, it did drop down, uh, and sellers were not putting their houses on the market. Uh, but we did see a, a huge uptick around June. And when we saw that uptick in June, we saw a lot of people coming out. Not only were people uh, buying houses, people were refinancing. So if you cannot buy a house, if you own a house, it is something to definitely take a look at to refinance because that can save you money. Uh, and a lot of people I've noticed, especially my clients and people that still have their jobs, have been saving. Uh, definitely take advantage of if you have a job, if you're not working, I mean, sorry, if you have a job and you're still able to work from home, if you're able to work safely, you know, continue to save because you never know where you'll, you will need that money. As of right now, um, being that we still have, you know, different uh, memoriams out there in terms of there is no evictions going on right now in terms of uh, purchasing a home, not purchasing a home, in terms of owning a home. Uh, and also with rents. I think tomorrow they will lift lift that. So if you are, are renting and you haven't been able to pay uh, your rent, they are changing the the process where you are allowed to start start the eviction process starting tomorrow. Uh, but you still have to wait. Landlords still have to wait 30 days. But as of right now, there are a lot of mortgage relief programs out there and also housing counselors to help and assist even renters as well, if you own a home and renters. Uh, I would say if it makes sense and you're safely able to do it, definitely invest. Because like I said, the interest rates are low. If you're able to get a house that's under, with an under 3% interest rate, you will save a ton of money versus getting a home with a 5% interest rate. That's a huge difference. So if you're able to take advantage, if you still have your, if you still have your job, I would definitely say if you can find you know, a, good, a good investment, then definitely take advantage of it. So I wouldn't stop investing. Uh, but do it with, with caution, do it safely. 
And that's what we're doing in my market and other markets throughout America because there's an uptick of, of, of the market is going up everywhere, not just, and I have statistics and everything on that too. Uh, Coach, I did create a PowerPoint, everything. <laughs> I can't hear you. you. Of course you created a PowerPoint because you don't know any other way but the right way. Uh, I, I will say that in Maryland, I know there was a 30, 36% increase during that period you're talking about of home buying um, in June. Yes. So this real estate plays a huge part to the economy. And mm -hmm. I agree if you can safely uh, uh, invest, if you can safely uh, make decisions on where you put your money. You will give your kids a peace of mind. And mm -hmm. I'm going to go to... Uh, Can I yes. Real quickly, sorry. Yes. And I, it's like with every, because we are in a recession right now. With every recession, uh, people do make money. A lot of millionaires are born in, in recessions. We've seen what happened in the last recession. Unfortunately, uh, the black community actually lost wealth a lot of people lost wealth in the in the recession, the last recession that we had. But of course, like that good old saying is, when America gets sick or America gets a cold, what black people get get pneumonia, right? So yep. black people black people actually saw at one point everybody started to see, you know, start to lose wealth. But years later, white people actually start to increase their wealth, while black people start to decrease wealth and also the latino community as well also started to eventually once we start you know the clothes started getting clear in terms of uh just uh the market getting better rebounding uh latinos actually started to increase their wealth as well but black people since the recession happened have have had have had a decrease in wealth um yeah okay well i want to thank you and i'm gonna go over to dr palmer dr palmer if, if you don't mind your book is, is so important to helping people understand. And, and Monique just touched it. We are impacted in so many ways. Uh, they're handing me something here, give me a second. We are, we are impacted in so many ways by this virus. But in terms of your, your book and in terms of understanding what you said earlier, how important it is to tell the truth and communicate with our kids, how important it is to tell them about what we're dealing with in terms of making sure that we don't look poor while trying not to be poor. Does that make sense? Yeah, yes. Um, I think like one of the, the, the first things, I, I think it, whenever we have conversations about this pandemic, uh, one of the things that pops in my mind is it's kind of like just another way of saying what I said earlier is we have to like fight the paradigm. Uh, mm. The paradigm that it is that we have right now is that, and, it, and it's a strong independent U S Eurocentric paradigm of individual responsibility that really own the only people who buy into it fully are black folks because white folks don't do that. They, they say it all, all day and then take a loan from daddy. You know what I'm saying? So like, we have to get past this idea that what we're being told is correct. Um, and not in a conspiracy theory way, but like in, in terms of just, you know what, if we can't pay rent because we can't work because of this pandemic, it's not about landlords. It's not about renters. It's about the federal government not giving us support in a time when they need to give us support. 
same difference with schools, same difference with like colleges and universities. It's like when I hear like when I when I hear about the the programs that schools offer that kids need to 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 be able to have access to and families need to have access to. The, 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 the belief is that teachers somehow need to sacrifice themselves so that these programs can continue. When in fact, with basic, you know, help from the government, these, 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 these programs can be offloaded and teachers don't have to die so that kids can get milk at, at lunch. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, I think we really have to start asking folks, how dare you ask me to be in this situation when you could fix it, you know? And, it, you know, it's, it's, so, so when I think about like how, how kids see us and like how um, we need to relate at home, I think we need to, to the way that we kind of get past some of the, the strife that we might feel between each other. Like if you're, you know, in, in, in your own family and like thinking about money and all this stuff, you have to get past that idea that somebody in the house is doing something wrong. You know, no one in the house is doing something wrong. We're in a pandemic. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, people need to really realize what we're talking about here. You can go outside to the grocery store, pick up some some canned tuna, not wash your hands, and die in a few days. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, I, I, I you know, I, I know I wrote a children's book, but I, I, one of the the genres I really enjoy is zombies. I don't know if y'all like Walking Dead and stuff like that, but I'd be walking outside and I'd be looking at these people wearing no mask and I'm thinking like, yo, I know where all those hordes would come from. Like you, you one of them cats who would get bit and not tell nobody, you know what I'm saying? So like, I, I think that we have to like realize the real circumstance we're in. I really identify with what Dr. Courtney Hutchin was saying. It's like, and I, I hear what you're doing there. You're like, you're like, look, it's a virus, it's physical. There's no way to change the physical reality of this virus. If we all just stayed home for 30 days, it'd be gone. But we don't do that because there's this whole paradigm telling us you have to work hard, you have to go out and take care, take care of all this business. You got to take care of that business that don't care about you. You know what I mean? Like you have to make these politicians look good and support their philosophies and show up for them when all it would take is some basic policy and some basic support, some basic stimulus. Even if you don't want to go and do the social stuff, you can just give us more money and everything would work out and people could stay home and we'd be good. Um, we were, we were good. And I'm from, I'm living in the Bay area, London breed, a black woman was the first person who came out. No, everybody likes to talk about New York and no offense, but out here, she did it right in the first place. And we were good until they started pulling back on things, trying to open things up, you know? Well, that, leads, so, me, that, yeah. that leads me doctor. And I need you to stay with me, uh, Dr. Palm. The, the shame that is associated with protecting ourselves seems to be the new weapon against us. Um, my wife and I just said, and I want to take a break here and, and, and say to my wife, uh, we just celebrated our anniversary. Uh, we were able to hopefully social distance properly uh, mm -hmm. in doing so. But one of the things that I, I noticed is there are a lot of people, sir, not wearing masks and the looks that we received, that I, I perceived we, we got, was because we were wearing masks everywhere we went, gloves, and we weren't shamed about putting on hand sanitizer. What is going on with people trying to make other people feel bad about wanting to protect ourselves? What is that about, uh, Dr. Palmer? <laughs> uh, and so just call it like a TI is. 
Yeah, it's it's stupidity. I don't know what to say. It's stupidity that that's related to. Um, I mean, there's a lot of folks with these. They they and I think this is a real problem in our community. We get caught up in things that we don't. We can't afford to be caught up in. Black folks don't have time for conspiracy theories. We don't have time for 5G. We don't have time for any of that stuff because, whereas white folks have the privilege to indulge in not vaccinating and doing all these things, when we do it we die, you know, our kids die, our grandparents die, you know, there's some real horrible consequences right around the corner because it's just, that's where we live. We live on the edge of that. And so when I, when I see folks out and they, they want to pressure you to be cool about certain stuff, that's because they're not really relating to the reality of it. They're not relating to the reality of the pandemic. They're not relating to the reality of how dangerous this is. And there's a dissonance that comes up that will make you do that. Like if you're, and you all know that, you have friends who do risky stuff, right? Like something as simple as this, drinking and, you know, this is something that makes people divide, drinking after other people, you know? You can have a friend who's like, I don't drink or eat after people. And you have friends who say, oh, we just pass bottles and do all that kind of stuff. The person who says they're not going to share things like that is usually put and cast as the person who's being like, whatever, they're not being, they're being too conservative until there's a breakout of mono, until there's a breakout of meningitis, until, you know, there's, there's something else that shows like, no, you're really not supposed to do this kind of thing. So I, I think that like, when it comes down to it, it, it's like, there's a dissonance that comes from doing the wrong thing and you want other people to kind of validate you. And so you have to stop, you have to, as a person be, have enough ego strength to say like, I'm not gonna validate you doing wrong. I'm gonna do right. And I'm gonna hopefully show you how to do right as I do right, you know? And that's all we can really do with those folks until there's better mandates. Well, I'm gonna- Go, also, go ahead, uh, uh, we're gonna bring in Heather. Go ahead, Heather. I'd also just like to add too that in addition to the dissonance that Dr. Palmer talked about, there are like valid and legitimate reasons for black and brown folks to not trust systems that haven't been in service to them. And so it, I'm not surprised when I, like how many uncles do we have who we know are sick and don't go to the doctor? Or, mm -hmm. you know, so like within our community, we, we, forget to recognize and to name that while we hate that they do that, while it is, you know, stupid and risky and dangerous, and you just want to shake them and get them to do the right thing because you know that it is something that's going to be safe and protect them. Anytime that all is about trust, it gets very much back to the school system, right? We ask parents to give us their children and to believe what we're going to do in the very systems, in the very classrooms that let them down that allowed them to graduate without being employable, that allowed them to graduate without having the, school, the skills they needed to matriculate into a career, right? We are at, and I don't mean individual schools, I'm talking about like systems. And so the healthcare systems have not always been in service of black and brown people, especially those who are positioned closer to poverty. And so when you tell me that it's a vaccine, you tell me that it's a, I mean, I've got folks who won't even take the flu shot because they're back there they're quoting Tuskegee experiment stuff like nah you know I would also you know I'd argue that uh, that, that is 
it doesn't make it right, but it does mean that for those of us who are sitting in those seats as school leaders, as psychologists, as realtors, as doctors, we have to help build more trust so that our people will be more likely to listen to us. We, there are lots of friends who could invest, but when it's time to come to it, they probably tell Monique, nah, that's just a scheme. Nah, I'm not doing that. You know, my grandmother did that and lost her money. Like, we have to realize the ways that these systems and the ways that they have for a very long time created the narrative that trusting in them is not helpful or sustainable and it's dangerous. And so I would rather trust my own hand washing and what I do with my community than to go and wear a mask. I'd rather just put my money in a shoebox under the bed than to think about ways I could invest. I'd rather just drink hot, uh, what do we do, ginger ale? And just, you're not sick, just get you some ginger ale. Like we have, we are from a people who are often trying to overcompensate for ways that we don't trust systems and but it doesn't that's why we right. need programs like this yes. to dispel that because that does not save your life you're right we need more doctors we need more scientists we need more engineers we need more people who can tell the truth because I agree with everybody what I'm hearing on the news what I'm hearing from our leaders, our scientists, our doctors that come on TV is not true. What I hear from the CDC, from the NIH, from HHS is nonsense. How can a vaccine be safe in six months when the, the best one we have is 10 years? 40 years, we still don't have an HIV vaccine. Give me a break. Well, let me ask the question. Yes, sir, doctor. Go ahead. I was just going to say that, you know, this conversation comes back to, again, the beginning of when you opened up this program. And the first thing you mentioned to me about that, the, the point that I uh, brought up uh, a couple of months ago when we had the first interview. And, uh, and I told you that the most important thing was information, identification of information sources that you can trust. And it still comes back to that same point. And, and, and I'm agreeing with uh, Dr. Palmer when he talks about the paradigm, because when you look at what's happening here, think about it from this perspective. You're being, uh, what, what are they attacking? They're attacking the medical profession. They're attacking the scientists and researchers like Courtney who come up with the information about this medical issue. It would be like you attacking an auto mechanic who's fixing your brakes. Um, and tell him he doesn't know what he's doing, I'm better, and then trust him to drive the car because we can't trust the auto mechanic, so we're going to do it our way. I mean, think about how crazy that sounds. And if you also remember, Coach Terry, one of the things I said to you months ago was, be on the lookout for a term, a very important term to be aware of, personal responsibility. Personal responsibility. I told you that months ago. I said, I foresee that at some point in time, what you're going to hear about is it's your personal responsibility. And that would be used as a way of twisting to put the blame on you. We are dealing with a virus. The pure person we should be fighting, no, excuse me, we should be fighting the virus, but they found a way to make it we're fighting each other so that you can be changed and molded and moved in a way they want. As Courtney was saying, we just had a change in CDC guidelines. We know from the early information we've done, that the life cycle of this virus is two to 14 days. You all recognize that just recently the CDC changed it to 
you only have to be in isolation for 10 days. And that's only 10 days after your symptoms start. And it, with, within 24 hours of the breaking of your flu, of your fever and other symptoms, if you don't have the test and you know you had coronavirus. In other words, there's the start, the slippery slope of trying to move that, move that, that needle down slower and slower to getting to that opening up concept. And so okay. I, I just want to say that you, you just brought us back to a full circle. Well, let me, let me do this if I can. Um, first, I want to thank everyone for being guests on the show. Uh, I want to thank those that are inside the Zoom themselves who sent the email. They wanted to be in. They wanted to ask questions. We are going to open it up for some questions. If you have questions, uh, Q&A, we are going to open that up for some Q&A. You've heard from our panelists. You've heard uh, how they are approaching this. And so inside the Zoom room and on Facebook Live, uh, we're opening this part up to you for your questions. I have a few questions myself, uh, but this is a chance to ask your question. One of the great things about being on the platform inside Zoom for those who registered to actually be in, this is the part where you get to ask your questions uh, directly to who you like or in general we need and want to hear from you. This is about life and death. So if you have a question, we invite you to put it in. But in the meantime, uh, Jan, I, I want to ask you, uh, Jan, real quick, um, in terms of dealing with this, this virus and, and everything that has come about, here's the question I'm going to ask everyone before I go to the poll. Uh, Doc, uh, Jan, I want to start with you. And the question is, what has been your personal experience in dealing with the quarantine and, and how you are managing yourself to get through? That's to you, Jan. <laughs> I am probably not the best person to ask that question for. I'm extremely uh, active. Uh, staying inside, I think, for all of us is a huge challenge. Uh, most of us, I can hear... Uh, vis-a-vis -vis the comments so far. This has been very instructive. Uh, most of us are very active, outgoing people. Uh, my own personal schedule consists of an early morning walk, two and a half, three miles at 6, 6.30 in the morning. Um, then I, after that, I might go to mass, say some prayers, uh, work inside the house the rest of the day, and then one more venture out later in the day, occasionally to a meeting uh, at a distance, that sort of thing. Uh, it is a great challenge. I have flown once. Uh, I do have family uh, that I have to see about and other responsibilities in other places. So, But I think all of our lives are, are, are variations of that. And I think many of us have used this time, uh, hopefully, uh, in terms of communication and supporting each other. Uh, this is a lot to deal with. I, I thank the uh, the doctor who mentioned the the misinformation that's out there about vaccines. The average time to to vaccine production of an effective vaccine is actually five years. Uh, but there's this information now that we're going to have one in a few months. That's ridiculous. Uh, there's so many impurities to work out in vaccines. So I bring that up in the context of, of helping to support each other as you are uh, – 
Rick, thank you for creating this podcast today and this discussion. There's so much misinformation out there. There's so much lack of support. You know, there are many people who are shut shut in who need some uh, grocery help. Um, people in need of just a phone call. Hi, how are you doing? Are you still there? Is there anything I can do for you? Um, you know, looking for looking at ways for us to reach for each other and to sustain and support each other through this, helping each other with the kids. We've been talking about kids much of the time. Some We forget that some parents are not able to really help their kids academically at home and to support them well. There are some of us who can fill in some of those gaps. You know, we can be filling in the gaps. We can actually fill in gaps for each other. So anyway, those are just some thoughts and ideas about what to do with, with a lockdown situation. Well, I think you touched something. And by the way, go ahead. Let, let me just say, we, we are not on a, on a broader scale. We're not going to get anywhere with this virus, I don't think, from an epidemiologic point of view, until there is a global lockdown, at least within the United States, at least nationally. We would have to quarantine, and I won't say quarantine, but, quote, lockdown at the same time, simultaneously. Otherwise, we simply have a migrating um, spike. In, in cases and in deaths. And so that puts us on fire all the time somewhere in the United States because it's just a migratory transition. It becomes a migratory transition of the virus. Uh, and until we have full and adequate and available testing, we are also not going to get anywhere. So the, well, we, we are looking at, looking at this for the long, long haul. And that, that's what I want to do. I want to jump in. I want to tell everybody again, you're listening to Speak Out Loud on the One Do North platform. We want to thank you for joining us. Uh, one of the things I've heard several say uh, from the panel is how important it is to get real information. Uh, I don't know all the questions to ask. I'm going to need your help. If you have questions about it, uh, so maybe something uh, has been said that you want more information on, or if you would like to expand the conversation, you are invited to send your questions. One of the questions that I did get uh, for everybody on the panel uh, is, and we're going to finish this, but one of the questions we got is, should I line up to take this possible cure uh, when it is being rushed? I'm concerned myself about corners being cut, about uh, quacks who want to inject people with stuff that, you know, you're not putting no light anywhere in me or, yeah, let's just leave it in me. You're not putting in lights. You're not wiping me down with any disinfectants. But how do we know what is when it's time to take that shot, when it's time to give our children that shot? When do we know it's safe? Because I'm concerned, uh, and, and I don't want to get into anything else. I just don't want to line up to take something that may kill me. When do we do that, anyone? Dr. Virgil, Dr. Uh, Houchin, uh, when do we do that? Again, when we, uh, from my standpoint, the issue of trust has to be looked at here. I believe that anyone who's getting ready to get lined up to, or, or thinking about taking the vaccine should definitely have a conversation with their medical provider. Um, and they should get all the information they can on that particular virus. As it stands right now, 
and, and Courtney or Dr. Hutch, um, Dr. Hushin, Hudson can, can correct me here. There are about 100 to 150 vaccines out there they're putting together out there. And the way it looks, we're going to have more than one vaccine coming to availability at about the same time. So I think it's going to be important that you get the information about the vaccines, that you then talk to your primary care providers about this. Because one of the things I'm going to look at is, you know, I know that one of the things they want to push is getting the vaccine in those who are greatest, at greatest risk. That means we're talking about individuals with heart disease, diabetes, hypertension, those types of things. But from my standpoint, I'm going to be telling uh, the individuals that I talk to, well, let's, let's hold. When you have those types of uh, risk factors, it may be to our benefit to us to wait to see what goes on with this virus. So that would be my um, uh, information there. Courtney? I agree. I agree with Dr. Virgil completely. There, there's over 180 viruses that are going to be, I mean, vaccines that are going to be close. The, uh, there's one in China, which is a dead vaccine or attenuated vaccine. Uh, there's one in Oxford we, we hear people talking about. There, the Moderna in, in the United States is a RNA vaccine, mRNA vaccine, which has never been shown to work yet. Uh, their DNA vaccines, there's all type of vaccines going out here, but none of them have been around long enough to even accurately assess the even one year safety of it before you give it to somebody. And I, I just don't know how someone who's at risk like us, uh, and when you add on to the Tuskegee experiment type things, I don't know how any of us could trust a vaccine that's coming out this way under this administration until we see a whole lot of people first. So I, 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 again, I'm speaking for myself, not my institutions. I don't know if I would even begin to take this vaccine right now. Well, I want to remind our audience that we are not telling you what to do. The idea is to give you enough information that you can start researching. Uh, as uh, Dr. Virgil said, you can call your primary care or pediatrician uh, and, and ask the questions you want to ask. Uh, I have been concerned that a lot of uh, media have been talking about us, but few have talked to us. What we've attempted to do here at One Do North and Speak Out Loud is bring people that could speak to us that we can engage with who have the background, the experience, the education, and they are compassionate enough to share. There are going to be a lot more deaths. Let me be very clear. Um, my, my, my belief is when the President of the United States stands up and says, that there is more trouble on the way. It's going to get a lot worse. Now, I need you to understand the source of this information is telling us, and I believe him, uh, because I believe it is a, well, I won't get into that. The President of the United States has finally said this is going to get a lot worse. I would take at least this one time and believe him. And one of the things you can do is gather the resources to protect your families. That's really important. But back to where we started this question, because I want to get to the poll, and I'm going to go to Heather. Heather, the question was to everybody, what has been your personal experience during this quarantine, and how have you dealt with it? 
Um, well, I, I think first I want to remind us um, to kind of tie up the conversation that was just happening is that we have to remember that nothing without about us, without us is for us. And so a huge part of our ability to make the decisions that we need to will rely on our ability to connect with folks who are within our network, who are an extension of our network, folks that we trust, folks who we rely on, and then to get to having honest conversations with the people in our homes and in our families, because every situation is unique and every situation is different. I think to answer your last question about what have I been doing to try to stay active and you know inspire during this time, um, I've been doing a lot of reading. I've been doing a lot of um, evaluating. I think this pandemic and this um, need to quarantine has caused some forced reflection to think about some things that I am willing to give up and some things that I am not willing to give up to give up and what the risk associated with those things were. And so, you know, there are things that I used to like to do and would probably be doing on a Thursday night if the world wasn't in the way that it is. And now I'm thinking, well, is it worth enough to do that now that I would have to wear a mask and socially distance and wear gloves and potentially put my family at risk? And so I think for me, this time has been very helpful in identifying really one, what my values are and what things I'm willing to compromise and which things I'm not. Um, I think that anywhere, any time that you're connecting with your village, be it Zoom or phone calls, or I've written a lot more letters and sent a lot more cards than I usually would have been doing. Uh, haven't forgotten anybody's birthday during the pandemic. Um, in fact, sent my cards out earlier. And so again, I think that you know, I, I'm a generally optimistic person. I have a tendency to think about obstacles as opportunities. And so I've really been thinking about what I value, what matters to me, and also just operating from a spirit of gratefulness. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that I, you know, that my internet worked today, that I'm in a climate controlled house, that there's food in my belly, that there's smiling faces that are looking at me. And so not to undermine how difficult and challenging it is um, for all kinds of people, but when I get closer to those faces, I always try to remember um, that this is just an opportunity and just to be grateful for all of the things that, um, that I have been able to do and all the things that I will do once we get out of this. Well, I, I want to thank you for that because I am instantly reminded that what makes us work best is, especially as African-Americans from the beginning of our uh, time on this, on this earth, uh, to the voyage to what would become America, we have always been a creative people. We thrive when we create. We intimidate when we create. What I think one of the things that we can do is become better at this pandemic, in this pandemic of creating. Um, if you, one of the things I learned was from my wife at the beginning of it, when all the news was gloom and doom, when everything was happening to include an impeachment, we had the George Floyd murder, uh, we had the late videos coming out of, of Breonna Taylor and uh, a whole lot of other things. The thing that happened, we got so caught up watching all these new shiny objects, if you will, that were about our lives, that we stopped creating. 
we have got to start creating. My wife created a garden, uh, probably because she wanted to do something. Uh, I got a sister who started designing sneakers. Um, I got nieces and nephews who started a business, a food truck business, and it's still doing well. We do well uh, when we create, and whether that's maybe write your play. You've been thinking about writing your book, and I think Heather is, is right. As you begin to do these things, we spend less time and less energy on, on things that we can't change. What we can change is what we're in charge of and what we can do to help our families move forward. Monique, you, you live a, a, I call it the rooftop lifestyle. Uh, if you guys don't know, I'll say again, Monique is part of the Success in the Evening show, which comes on every Monday. Is it a cheap plug if I own the platform? Because I'm going to give it. It comes on every month, every uh, Monday at 5 p.m. Monique is a guest on that. She is uh, one of the original members of the flight crew. Monique, what are you, what are you doing to keep your sanity and, and get through this pandemic? What are you doing? I'm so probably similar um, as my fellow Hamptonian. Uh, just, you know, working no, on- Don't have people start, don't dunk on here. I got Howard in here. I don't need this mess. <laughs> Sorry, I had to do that. Don't do that. Uh, but no, same thing, just really working on, on more certifications, uh, increasing my education. Uh, as you know, I've been working on my podcast, um, but also mainly just building up the business so I can help other individuals that look like me. Because at the end of the day, you know, we could take as much, um, I take as much caution as possible. Um, so I've been doing a lot of things like more, mainly from like home. And if I'm going out and doing certain stuff, uh, DC's numbers are doing relatively well, thank the Lord. Um, so making sure that we're in spaces with people that we know and trust that aren't, you know, moving around the way some of these other people are and still wearing your mask and social distancing. Uh, but outside of that, just really uh, certifications, um, uh, doing a lot of Zoom meetings and calls and uh, different interviews as well. And, and also just expand on a business so I can really, uh, once this is over, you can, I can really start, you know, helping our community as much as possible when it comes to trying to rebuild that wealth that we lost uh, during the recession. Well, one of the things you mentioned, and I, and, and I am a strong proponent of this, it's important that we get our voices out. And Monique has a very powerful podcast called Young, Black, and Invest. She brings some tremendous guests onto her platform. Uh, we talked about it. She worked it out. And it is a great uh, financial platform if you want to get into finance, understand it at the ground level, understand home ownership. But the key was she was willing during this time to create, goes back to creating and now she is having some phenomenal guests and bringing some phenomenal information mm -hmm. to the forefront. Uh, Dr. Palmer, how, go ahead, go ahead, Monique, before I bring in Dr. Palmer. And one thing I have been like pushing and I really want all of us to try to do, um, just try to do a better job at is just really, definitely we understand you know, the importance of COVID-19. Definitely, that is definitely priority right now. Uh, but we know once this is over and done with, we're going to be back to, 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 to ground zero with dealing with racism. So really just not just popularizing the notion of essentially not just popular, making popular the notion of, you know, just talking about racism, but really 
trying to do a big push or implement in policies. Because that's why, you know, this racial wealth divide where it's at is because of what the government and um, housing and a lot of different things, you know, other organizations and stuff like that that's in power, they created this big divide. So if we could really, you know, make like that conversation popular in terms of, I know everybody doesn't want to talk about it and people don't like to talk about it is reparations. And it doesn't have to be monetary. There's other ways and other implementations that can be done to really change this narrative for our community. So just want to throw it out there to, you know, start having these powerful conversations, not just talk about taking statues down, but let's have real conversations about changing and implementing policy. That's well, what we're gonna do. I like that, Monique. We had a question came in for you while you were speaking. Uh, it simply says, Monique, I want to buy a house, but I'm scared. What should my first steps be uh, if I'm interested in purchasing a home? What programs exist to make the process easier and smoother uh, that you are aware of? And thank you for, for your answer. Uh, what say you, Monique? Uh, well, I would definitely say a lot of things. The good thing about the the good thing is a lot of things can be done online. So I would definitely say start working on your finances and working on getting pre-approved. A lot of this stuff can be, like I said, done online with the mortgage lender. You can apply online. Depending on, depending on where you're at, there's a lot of local programs as well, which you can look up for your state or your city, wherever you're at. Usually there's a lot of local and state programs out there. And then once you've kind of gotten that in order, you know, call me. I'm joking. Definitely. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not mad at you. Well, I want to go to Dr. Palmer. Dr. Palmer, um, what are you doing, sir? I know you you got all kinds of projects and schedules and, and, and classes, but what are you doing to keep your sanity for you? So um, before we go there, I, I do want to kind of want to swing really quick back to, because I, I, I really resonate with what uh, what Heather was saying around like um, like folks not trusting, um, and I, I think that one of the things that we have to do as a as a community is really one like understand the stories that come in right. So a lot of times folks talk about Tuskegee for instance, but they don't actually know what happened in Tuskegee. They just know that Tuskegee was bad, and so like when we think about who's going to be first and all that stuff, don't we don't need to be jumping in on studies. We don't need to be the only ones taking stuff. We need to wait and like, you know, I, one of the things that I do, and I don't know if I'm right or wrong about this, but like, I, I tend to make sure I go to hospitals and other services where I know it's integrated, you know, because I want to make sure I want to see that white person got that. I'll get it too, you know, because that stuff is real. We, like if you go into, if you go into a, a black enclave where we're being served by other people, then they will sometimes do weird stuff to us. And that even came out in some of the news coverage around COVID when they're talking about doing studies in Africa and they got caught up about that. Um, in terms of me taking care of myself, um, well, and the, 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 the big point is, is that a lot of these conspiracy pieces, they're not coming from our community. They're coming from outside of our community. And so like figuring out kind of who we're gonna trust and how we're gonna figure out how to trust them. In terms of me and, and what I'm doing, my, my biggest problem is honestly trying to not do too much. Um, I think that, you know, our culture tells us that we have to run ourselves ragged all the time. And that we, you know, in, in American culture, we're constantly like work, work, work. In black culture, in African-American culture, African-centered culture, I think that 
we respond to that work question or that work push by like pointing out like we're not the stereotype that they think we are and we're constantly messing with that stereotype threat and like trying to like prove ourselves and I think we need to back off of that like because that's what brings this hypertension that's the obesity stuff that's all this stress that we bring in so like I'll sit here and be sitting at this desk for like 16 hours if I if my wife doesn't come up and be like hey what's wrong with you come on come downstairs I'll sit up here and just be working on one project after another and I don't even while I'm doing that I won't be thinking I'm doing enough you know I don't I'm, did I did I write I, I wrote another book should I write another book should I should I get on this this panel should I do this you know I the student needs this thing I need to get back to them you know I think we we need to do we need to be really mindful of taking care of ourselves how are you making sure you're eating regularly how are you making sure that you're getting enough exercise whether you're going outside or whether you need to set up a home gym or whether you just need to do some push-ups you know whether you modify them or not like are you are you taking care of your relationships are you like make going downstairs talking to your family members and saying how was your day i haven't seen you all day because we've both been on zoom calls but can we talk about that you know like are you your, your show isn't coming on right now like you watch you don't know maybe you watch shonda every thursday but Shonda can't do Shonda because she can't get people together. And how are you coping with that and paying attention to the fact that like the normal staples of your day aren't happening. If you don't attend to those things, then all the rest of it's going to suffer. Your health is going to suffer. You're going to be more at risk for things. And I mean, the worst thing you can do right now in this pandemic is end up having strife at home. Um, so, so keeping yourself true. safe is and keeping your, your relationships good and keeping your health good, um, that's part of this too. So that's what I would say. It's like, that, that's what I focus on and try to take care of myself. Well, Brother, you got a new client over here. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, wait a minute, because uh, I was just getting ready to call on you, Courtney. What, what did you say and why? <laughs> he got a new client because I, I, I'm exactly what he just said. You are, you are all of that. You have never stopped. But my question to you, Courtney, is what are you doing? And I know this is a hard question for you, Courtney. Uh, what are you doing uh, to make sure, Courtney, that, that you're going to get through this thing and to not go crazy in the process? What is Courtney doing? Well, I'm already crazy. So that, that's a that. What I'm going to do is sign up with my brother right here and let him counsel me on how to do what he says I need to do. Cause I'm the same way. I, I, um, since this pandemic lock pandemic lockdown, I've been working way more than I normally work. And, um, in fact, I I'm getting up at four or five in the morning. Had I been able to do that, I'd be a surgeon instead of gastroenterologist. But this is the first time in my life that I'm getting up that kind of time in the morning and doing work. Well, I know that's right. Courtney, I have a question for you. Um, I actually, Dr. Virgil, I want to come to you on this one, and then Courtney, I'll come to you. Dr. Virgil, in terms of testing, there is a lot of speculation out there about testing, and, and, and my question to you is, should we, if we haven't been tested, should we be tested? Or if we, you know, in the, there, should we get a test? I, I think that the significance of a test is in the presence of uh, symptoms of infection. Uh, otherwise, I don't think you should be running around. And, and I know there are people like this. Uh, as you remember, my, my wife is on the front line. She works in the acute care uh, uh, environment. 
And, and one of the things that's driving them crazy is individuals constantly coming in a test. And it's, it's funny in this uh, area, she talks about individuals being, uh, uh, um, uh, they're having uh, advantages and, uh, and they constantly want to be tested. But I believe you should be tested in the presence of having symptoms of infection or if you have been exposed to someone who has the infection. And then those are the two times that I think the testing is most appropriate. Can I throw in one thing just from a from kind of a behavioral standpoint? Because I, you know, I'm I'm kind of a hypochondriac sometimes. I get, I I, I was a person who don't want to drink after people. So like, um, when I've had that urge to like, do I need to get tested? Did I expose myself? Is there something you know? I think one of the things that people can do, and it's a, it's a, aligns with what you said about symptoms. Like, just take your own temperature. You know, take your temperature. If you don't have a fever at that moment then you probably don't need to go do that. And you can just relax because otherwise you'll sit there and worry. You know, sometimes the best way to deal with psychological distress is just to ground yourself in the reality, you know? So like getting, looking at it and saying it's 97 or 98 point whatever, that that's a way to kind of let go of the idea that am I sick? Am I, you know, your psychosomatic stuff happening. You, you actually have a physical reality there. Well, I, I want to I want to thank you because the question was you know and it comes through who should get tested when should they get tested uh, Jan I want to come back to you if I can uh, and my question was to you Jan is uh, there is this mental toll that both the quarantine and the fear of the virus has created is there something you can think. Uh, that you think the black community should be on the lookout for and how can we relieve that stress from you, from your knowledge and experience? Well, you know, I, can you hear me? Yes. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, it's one of the really interesting um, things here, Rick, is, are the times that we are living in. I mean, we have the, the situation with the virus that is dovetailed very much and very closely intertwined with the Black uh, Black Matters uh, movement, um, and I, I think that you know we're at a real crossroads here, where our lives are are stressed and confounded and discombobulated in a way that perhaps has not existed so much before. So we have a real combination here of, of mental and physical stress. We're stressed from every single possible direction here. Uh, and, the, and, you know, the, the conversation relative to these two intersections of these two viruses, that is racism and, and, and the infectious process that is, that is life-threatening. Both of them are life-threatening for all of us. You know, the, the question, you know, the, the, the response always is, well, you know, we're going to get through this. This is going to be fine. And hopefully that's the case. We have to acknowledge, though, that we're living in a different time. We're living in a time where autocracies are now a global phenomenon. This is not a unilateral kind of thing where there's one Hitler at one point in time or there's slavery at one point in time or the Roman Empire is existing at one point in time. We have multiple autocracies around the world here. So I think the reality is we are living under a different kind of threat. And sometimes I 
look at what is going on, and I think to myself, this is not so different from from Pharaoh's time, uh, Pharaoh and Moses, when God sent multiple various plagues uh, upon us. Uh, there was a purpose to all of this. What is difficult, though, is not knowing what is the purpose in this, and where are we going? What is the denouement for all of this? Where do, where do we wind up? Where does this leave us? I suspect that we will survive this, but we have to acknowledge that this is going to represent a change, a huge change, individually, socially, in, in, our, in the world order, and our day-to-day lives. Uh, when we deal with this with our kids, of course we tell them, you know, we see what their concerns are, how they're seeing things. We reassure them they're going to be safe. Things are going to work out one way or, or another. The adults are going to protect them. We still have to say these kind of things to the kids, but I think that we are stressed in a different kind of way here because this is not business as usual. This is not how it has been before. Furthermore, we look at this virus. The fact of the matter is, is like every other serious mental illness, it appears as though this virus can, can change brain chemistry, can do neuroanatomic damage to the brain, or at least that's what some of the early reports are looking like. Uh, so, and so there are implications there for us, especially since black and brown people are the people most affected by this virus. So the implication is that we can be changed in other ways. I mean, we, we perhaps will become more vulnerable. So I think as we go forward, again, we have to gather as much information as we can gather. And as John Lewis would tell us, we have to keep fighting on. Through all of this, we have to maintain our strength, our sense of self, um, and move forward uh, with faith in ourselves and each other and in our futures. So mentally, though, I I think we are very taxed, without a doubt. I'm glad you brought up the late Congressman John R. Lewis. Uh, As everyone knows, he was laid to rest today. His funeral services were today. And I want to remind everyone uh, especially those that are uh, demonstrating or marching, uh, you're doing it the right way peacefully. Uh, I want you to continue to do that. But I, I want to remind you that John Lewis was one of the last uh, heroes of the civil rights movement. I say that because there is now an opportunity and an opening uh, for that job. We need everyone to get involved. This is not the time to stand on the sidelines and say somebody else will do it. I thought they would get it done. This is the time where we, we have to get our hands in this fight. This fight is about us. This fight started, uh, it was highlighted by the death of many who have died at the hands of of, uh, police officers and others. And finally, the teapot hit a full ball. Now that it's been boiling for a while, we've got to figure out what to do. Where do we go from here? And so as we begin to wrap down this discussion, uh, that's my question to the panel amongst uh, one or two more. 
And as a panel, if you could, in a short answer, as best you can, and Dr. Virgil, we'll start with you. Where do we go from here? You're, you're muted, Dr. Virgil. I think that you uh, made a very good point. Um, I, I thought about this also um, in a lot of uh, detail. Um, do we miss this opportunity? We've had so many opportunities uh, to, to, when things have come up that look like an opening for us to truly address issues. As far as COVID-19, there is no doubt. This is a defining, the fact that it disproportionately impacts um, black and brown people is definitive. It's a defining component of this virus. And um, we are at a time where we need to push forward. And I think our next step is that we don't let this drop. We don't let what happened to George Floyd. We don't let uh, the fact that we are in a situation right now where we have a virus that is uh, uh, decimating our populations to a greater extent than the other. We don't let it go. We get out and we push and we push and we keep having programs like this. We keep talking, we keep letting, informing our children and we keep demanding. And that's where we go next. We keep demanding. You're muted, we can't hear you. Dr. Palmer, thank you. I come to you, 30 seconds. What say you, sir? You know, um, as a psychologist, my all my work is about reality, like helping people understand reality, helping them understand and shape their own reality. Um, I think that for us, we need to live in reality. We have to like radically live in reality. That's everything from understanding that this is a true virus, this is a true pandemic, this is really happening, to understanding that when we talk about Black Lives Matter, we're talking about you and your life too, specifically. And that we all have something that we have to bring into this, this fight, but we can't do it if we die. So when we're thinking about whether I'm gonna go to that barbecue or I'm gonna go to that church service or if I'm gonna go do whatever it is that I'm gonna risk my life for, think about what it means for us to lose you in the community. Like what, what brilliance do we lose when you step off because you decided to do something that wasn't necessary? So I think for me, it's, it's a matter of remembering of, and loving ourselves enough to take on this stark reality that we're living in and survive it the way that our ancestors did, the stark reality that they lived through so that there's a future for us. I, I agree and thank you. Uh, Heather, I got to come to you um, as we begin to close out this. What would you like to say to the community at large? Yeah, so I, I think this message is for um, parents and for grandparents and, and anybody who has a child that is school age, be it three and four years old or all the way up through college. I think my first piece of advice would be that um, I would encourage you to have a conversation with your child's teacher, especially if they had a positive trusting relationship. If not, seek out an educator who you trust. I think you need to have an honest conversation about how your child was doing in school prior to this and a, a realistic conversation about how socially distancing, distance learning went. A lot of folks, um, you know, we are, 
teachers and educators are expecting students to end up below for time that was missed. And in doing that, we forget all the funds of knowledge and all the other things that children are learning and experiencing outside of traditional school. So I would encourage everyone to first engage in a conversation. Um, with someone who you know who is an educator. Talk to them about your child. Um, also encourage them to encourage everyone to think about what is developmentally appropriate um, for our children. I think we often miss the opportunity to know exactly what is developmentally appropriate behavior. And so then when it emerges with our children, we immediately think that something is wrong with them instead of understanding developmental benchmarks for children. I think my last piece of advice is I would encourage um, folks in our community, specifically in the black and brown community to get active. Um, it doesn't have to be at grand levels. It can be going to your ANC meeting. It can be making sure that you have registered to vote, making sure that you don't miss the mail-in ballot date, making sure that your children understand you know, what it means um, to, to exercise that right to vote, to be a person who is as responsible to the constitution and everything in it as anyone else. And so I think if we can begin to have honest conversations with where we are, then we can be in a better place to have honest and reasonable demands of others when we go to hold them accountable. Well, I thank you for that. And I could not agree more. Uh, I'm gonna go over to Monique. Uh, Monique, what do you say? Uh, what do you have to say to those that are, are thinking again about investing, uh, thinking about, I know you are on the board of one of the schools in DC. Um, as we close out, what do you say to, to the masses? Um, I would definitely say that if you can invest, definitely do it. All the gains that we made during the civil rights era has basically been lost. So, you know, we really need to think about what's happening within our community economically. We really need to start pushing for more of an economic, you know, it needs this, this a lot of our conversations around um, just racism. We need to start just having more conversation on the economic piece. And um, I would say, you know, the, the stop listening to, or not say stop listening to really the conversations around reparations don't back down. We're having that conversation uh, and start pushing more of people in power, popularize it, make it popular, uh, reparate the conversation around reparations. It's not impossible to have. It doesn't have to be just monetary. There's so many different policies and different things that we can put in place to help our community that, you know, that there's a lot of lingering effects uh, from all of the discrimination that's happened throughout our history. And there's still things that's happening even today that we are still, that's still being impacted from our community. And other, community, other communities have benefited from a lot of discrimination, uh, discriminatory practices that's happened to our people. So I would just say, you know, keep the fight alive, you know, start talking more about the economic justice that we really, really need to have for our community. If not, we're not gonna have any wealth. And that's not going to be good. We have, if we have nothing to pass on to our children and our grandchildren, it's going to be even worse for them. We're having a conversation around, as of right now, we have COVID-19 going on and how it's hurting our community. If we ever have any other health issues that come up, it's only going to make it worse if we have no money and we're not in power. 
So we really need to do a much harder push around the economic uh, justice piece. Well, I, I could not agree more, Mo, and I really, really appreciate your input as well as everybody's. I want to make sure, first of all, did I, did I, did I get everyone uh, in the last 30 seconds? Uh, no. did, I, did I miss anyone? Courtney? Yes, yeah. <laughs> Courtney, I'm scared to bring you on, man. <laughs> Courtney, in, in, these last, in, these, in these last minutes before we go out and before we do the poll, what do you say uh, to the masses? Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for doing this program, and I think we need way more of it. I agree with everything that's been said. This time is an opportunity because it has illuminated that we are part of the service and subservice economy that the masses depend on, but pay us nothing and don't allow us to generate wealth and ownership. That is what we need to focus on in this time, this opportunity. If we can build things, create things like you said, own things, sell things, then we can get through this. And, and I think it's important, Courtney and, and all my guests, um, that we, we find ways, we're good at consuming. Uh, I'm hoping we will change our mindset and become producers uh, and owners. I'm hoping that we, we stay safe through this. I wanna go ahead and do this though, before uh, time, and I know you guys have given your time, I'm gonna launch a poll. And if you're still with us on the different platforms, unfortunately on Facebook, you're not, you won't see this poll, I don't think. But to my people in the Zoom broadcast, uh, including my panelists, we're launching the poll now. And if you could go ahead and, and take that poll, I appreciate it. It's up now. Um, we're going to do something here. Uh, go ahead and take that poll, if you will, including those that are in the uh, chat room. And I want to thank why, why you're taking the poll. Uh, and we can see the results live. So go ahead and take it. Uh, do you guys see the poll on your screen? No. Yes. Oh, you don't? If, if no one, who said yes? Somebody I, said yes. I did. I'm, I'm, I'm taking it right now. Yes. This is Dr. Virgil. I okay, see it too. I've taken it. Okay, thank you. And as well as uh, in the in the uh, attendees room, if you guys would like to take it, please go. Uh, did I did I catch everyone in the uh, in the room and, and give you your time to say what you had to say to the masses? Did I miss anyone? Uh, doc, Dr. Palmer, I did get you, I believe, right? Is there something? Okay, thank you, sir. Uh, guys, I want to say as they're taking the poll, as the poll is being taken, uh, one of the first questions is, do you wear a mask when around others? Uh, I am glad to see a 100% response on that. I got to tell you, I am really happy about that because we have got to protect each other. And these uh, experts have said, um, subject matter experts have said that it is important that we continue to, to uh protect ourselves. So I'm really, really grateful that you guys are taking this poll uh, and that you are looking at the questions and you are doing it. Uh, one of the questions that I was really looking forward to is, do you feel safe returning to work? That's, I mean, <laughs> I'm so glad I'm no longer in corporate America. I don't know what to do. My office is right here with my family, but I know there are other people who don't get that option. 
So we're going to put this poll out. We're also going to share it as we continue this conversation with other guests as we talk about voting. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the police brutality. Uh, so there are a lot more conversations coming, uh, especially in next month. I want to take time to thank each and every one of my guests for being with us today. They didn't just give us a, a few minutes of their time. They've devoted more than a few minutes of their time to this. And I want to thank them. I, I want to thank uh, Jan, who, who jumped in by phone. Jan, I believe I got you. If I didn't, Jan, let me ask, let me make sure. Is there anything you want to say, Jan, uh, in terms of what you would like to say to the masses before we close out? Not, not really. Um, yeah, can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I think uh, there's so much to say about this, Rick. I mean, this is a forever conversation, and this is going to be the conversation for a long time. I mean, there's just so much, so much to talk about in terms of this. We can't possibly cover it completely all night, you know. Um, I think uh, I will say this, though. That from a spiritual perspective, certainly uh, this, this uh, I would think, would encourage and, and help us to pray more, uh, and to think more about our lives and to understand better that these days are not promised. These days are gifts, and we have to really make the most and the best of each and every day because every day is an opportunity, and the next day is not promised. Uh, so I'll just leave it at that. Thanks, well, Rick. Thank you. I want to thank all my guests. I didn't have to twist your arms. You basically said, yes, I'm in. And I, I really want to thank you. It's important that we continue to get good, positive, accurate information out, especially to our people. Uh, we're gathering news from sources that don't necessarily have our best interest at heart. And I want to say to those that are not African-American, we are not being exclusive. We are learning how to best take care of us because unfortunately those that have been given the power of leadership have not done a good job. That isn't up for debate, they just haven't. It is not up for debate at how this disease is targeting people of color. It is coming at us with a vengeance and so it's time that we start talking about and then implementing plans to take care of ourselves. I wanna remind everyone as we begin to close this out, we're not talking about whether it's right or wrong, we're talking about life and death. I want to say it again. We're not talking about being comfortable or uncomfortable. We're talking about life or death. We're talking about generations. Entire families have been destroyed because of this virus. Families have had all kind of stuff happen to them and their loved ones because of this virus. This is not the flu. I want to say again, this is not a flu. This is not a drill. This is all hands on deck. If you are sitting back, if you are in a position where you are going to wait to see if somebody else does something, you are on the wrong team. We need everybody in this fight. Continue to wear your mask. Continue to wash your hands. Continue to check on the elderly continue to care for those with compromised immune system, but most importantly, continue to be compassionate. We can't afford to leave one person behind. We can't. 
I hope you will continue to follow One Do North and the many platforms that we are doing. They were developed so that we could get the information to you. There's Success in the Evening with Coach Ricky Terry. It airs every Monday on Facebook Live under, under Success in the Evening with Coach Ricky Terry. There is the new platform, which is for small business and leaders and those looking to advance their careers and life. We call that uh, 45 Minutes to Takeoff. And then this show, Speak Out Loud, where we speak to the community and the community is speaking back. We need you to get involved. Start a podcast. Volunteer to read online to children. Volunteer to drop a meal off to seniors. Whatever you do, get involved. My name is Coach Ricky Terry, president of One Do North and the host of this platform. It has been in my country voice, my plum pleasing pleasure to be with you today. I wanna to thank each one of my guests for taking their time to give back. They have benefited from the education and from their knowledge and now they're sharing it. I pray that you take time to adhere to some of this information. Take care and we'll see you on the other side. Thank you guests, thank you who tuned in. God bless, stay safe, and put on that damn mask. Are you sick with it? Oh good, thank you. <laughs>